Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show, Let's Finish Cancer, where we bring you the brightest cancer experts and compassionate cancer navigators. Our goal is to make you stronger at a time you might feel at your weakest and to empower you to make the best decisions for you and your family. You'll hear about the latest in technology and treatment options, stories of patients and survivors, doctors that see you as more than a cancer diagnosis, and a whole person approach to cancer care. We want to be with you on your journey, and we know at times it can be bumpy, but we're here and we want to help you move forward. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Jennifer Pasco and Juan Mahia, both specialists in hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery from Spokane, Washington. Today, we're discussing gallbladder and bile duct cancer. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Well, let's get started by welcoming our guests to the show today. We're going to start with an easy one, though. Dr. Huang, tell us a little bit about your uh, role with Providence. So I'm a liver pancreas surgeon uh, or hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgeon. Um, I also, I'm also part of the transplant program. We have a, a kidney and pancreas transplant program here at uh, Providence. Awesome. Thank you for saying the word so I didn't have to. Um, Dr. Pasco, you've joined us before on another show, but go ahead and tell our listeners today a little bit about your role as well. Yeah, no, I uh, I work with Juan. We're partners in, in the liver and pancreas surgery department, and I do liver and pancreas surgery, and I mainly do oncologic surgery. So, Never a dull day for you guys, huh? <laughs> Tell me a little bit, Juan, um, what illnesses are you generally treating um, on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I would say, uh, like Dr. Pasco mentioned, the majority of our patients have cancer. Uh, that would be cancer of the liver, bile ducts, pancreas, uh, sometimes also uh, certain parts of the small intestine called the duodenum. Um, so that's the majority of patients we treat. There's also some benign conditions of those same organs that, that we manage. Um, that will be a smaller number. I know that today we're talking very specifically about the gallbladder um, and bile duct cancer. Um, so yeah. people may be listening who don't know, tell me a little bit about the gallbladder. Where is it? Why do we need it? Why, does, why do we have these diseases of it? So, yeah, the gallbladder is a small organ that lives right underneath uh, the liver. It's actually attached to the liver and is attached to the bile duct. Um, And I like to think of the bile duct kind of as if you were looking at a tree. There's a big stump and then there's two big branches that give off a right and a left duct. And then kind of where the, the leafy part of the tree is, you, the, the branches get a little smaller and those are small bile ducts inside the, the liver. And so that's the way I kind of like to think about the bile duct is kind of the big tree that drains uh, the liver. That sounds lovely. It's a great visual. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I, I have heard of gallbladder surgery, but I can't say that it's like something I hear very commonly. Juan, tell me a little bit about how, how frequent it is. Are we seeing more of it? Is it something we're getting a handle on? Um, well, gallbladder surgery in general, it's, it's just one of the most common operations done by general surgeons. You know, uh, the, the technical name of the operation is laparoscopic cholecystectomy. 
uh, and it's usually done for people that have stones that are causing pain. Now, gallbladder cancer, though, it's, it's a rare cancer. It's not within the top 10 cancers. Uh, if you think of cancer, sort of, we think of sort of breast, prostate, lung, and, and those top five, uh, gallbladder cancer would be sitting, uh, you know, probably 12, 13 down the list. So it's not a common cancer. Dr. Pasco and I see it often just because we, you know, we are the group who, who gets all those cases for, for management. Yeah. Well, and I guess my question probably is like, how, how risky is it? How dangerous is it? Is it something, you know, like sometimes with cancer, you can go 10 years and you just have a couple of things removed or you go through a minor chemo. What, what is the prognosis here when you get gallbladder cancer? So for, for gallbladder, gallbladder cancer and, and bile duct cancers uh, in general, these are cancers that are hard to, to cure. Um, there, there's a various reasons for that. You know, one of them, a lot of patients are not diagnosed until late stage. Um, and even when you are found uh, to be at an early stage and we can do a surgery and chemotherapy and sometimes radiation. Um, th this is not like those cancers where, you know, um, there's a high rate of cure. You said it's often not found until late stage. Why is that? Is it something that we just don't screen for or we don't know or we think it's something else? So yeah, there's currently by, you know, the, our national guidelines, the United States uh, task force, task force that sets for which cancers we screen, such as breast, colon, prostate, uh, gallbladder is not in there. So there's no general population screening guidelines for gallbladder cancer. So when people become symptomatic, um, it, it's, you know, uh, often, uh, late, um, are there, I mean, that's concerning, right? So now I'm thinking, oh gosh, how do I know if I have it? Are there risk factors or are there symptoms? What are the signs that I should be looking for? And maybe for you, Dr. Pasco. Yeah. You know, for gallbladder cancer, you know, we think of certain ethnicities actually going back to med school, really patients of Latin American descent, Hispanics, um, Native Americans are at much higher risks of developing uh, gallbladder cancer. Um, and particularly women actually carry a higher, um, statistically higher significance for going on to de develop um, gallbladder cancer. Um, we also look at, you know, one of the things I find interesting is that people who have gallbladder cancer also have a higher predilection for having um, H. pylori, which is a bacteria of the stomach. Um, and then, you know, obesity and age. Usually we see this in people who are over the age of 70 and um, people who have a BMI greater than 30 also carry um, a higher risk of going on to develop um, gallbladder cancer. So I'm overweight and I'm Native American. Great. I'm checking boxes here. I'm not 70 yet. But what about something like gallstones, right? So a few of my aunties have had gallbladder surgery. They've had gallstones, kidney stones. Is that something that I would say, oh, no, as a family member, I should be really concerned about? 
Yeah, so gallstones probably are the highest risk factor for going on to develop a, a gallbladder cancer, but it's also like how long you've had the gallstones, right? So one of the reasons obesity is on the list is because obesity in increases your insulin and it also, you know, causes you to form more stones. Um, and so, you know, really, yes, gallstones, because it's a chronic inflammation and that's why it's how long you've had it. So, you know, the risk of inflammation over time is what we think actually goes on to uh, encourage or increase the risk of developing these cancers. So Dr. Miha, how, how do you diagnose it? So again, we talked to, you know, a lot of times you're getting it late, right? But what is it that brings somebody in? Is it I'm in the emergency room? Am I, I'm, how, how are you typically saying, okay, now I'm going to search for it and now I've diagnosed it. What's that process? Yeah, I um, just, just wanted to, to make a comment before I answer that, you know, just, just kind of keep in perspective that this is a, a rare cancer and which is part of the reason why there's no screening guidelines for it. Um, the majority of patients out there with this, these risk factors that Dr. Pasco mentioned, uh, like stones, obesity, uh, ethnicity, and so forth, will not go on to develop gallbladder cancer. Um, so even, even uh, when you take into account the risk factors that we know, um, for those patients, uh, the incidence is, is very low. Um, so it, again, it's not a condition where there's a very strong risk factor, like you would think smoking and lung cancer. There, there's not such a condition, similar risk factor for gallbladder cancer. Um, how, how you go on uh, to diagnose this, uh, you know, the majority of these patients are actually diagnosed incidentally. Uh, roughly somewhere around 60% of patients will come in with abdominal pain. The doctors think that they're having, you know, an acute gallbladder flare up or attack. They, they, get diagnosed with what we call cholecystitis, which is inflammation of the gallbladder. They get taken to the operating room, they get their gallbladder removed and, you know, their surgeon will come and, oh, that was a bad gallbladder. Well, that could be just from the chronic inflammation. When they get the pathology back um, from the gallbladder a few days later, that's where the gallbladder cancer is found. So that's how the majority of gallbladder cancers uh, are diagnosed, uh, incidentally at the time of gallbladder surgery, uh, you know, for, uh, a diagnosis, uh, thinking that it's just an acute gallbladder. So, well, so what about then bile duct cancer? Is it similar? Or are you diagnosing it pretty much the same way? Yeah, I think that we are, you know, a lot of people, I would say that the way that we think about bile duct cancer is it's there's intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and then there's uh extrahepatic uh cholangiocarcinoma so if you think about it the the cancers that are occurring within the tree or within the liver are the intrahepatic uh cholangios and i would say a lot of those there is some screening that's going on because uh patients with cirrhosis or uh fatty liver are undergoing screening surveillance hopefully with their primary care physicians every six months with ultrasound and the goal is to catch cancers because we know that, again, chronic inflammation um, 
can lead to developing these cancers. I would say extrahepatic cholangio is a little bit more difficult and there's not a lot of screening. And as Dr. Mejia said, many of these cancers, you know, people don't know they have them and they present at very late stages um, because there's not a lot of symptoms that go along with it. But for the bile duct cancer, one of the things that's nice that if it truly is within the bile duct itself, people become yellow. And that is a very, um, it's not, <laughs> people will notice that. And so that's nice that if, the, if you do become jaundice, that people typically are aware of that and it's not the vague symptom. Well, Dr. Pasco, our, let's, let's say, pick one of them. Um, what's the typical treatment? Do they always involve surgery? I mean, it's cancer, so we often think chemo. Talk to me a little bit about what, what the best methods for treatment are. Well, you know, we, we are surgeons, and so we like to believe that to cut is to cure, but I think that what we have learned along the way is that it's more of that combo deal, right? Like many of these cancers have, you know, poor outcomes, and so we know the utilization of chemotherapy and sometimes even radiation or other modalities such as uh, yttrium 90 or Y90 beads are going to be important, but the curative intent is with surgery and with chemotherapy is typically what we tell our patients. All right. So Dr. Mahas, let's say you're cutting, right? We're curing by cutting. I like that. Um, what is, what does that look like? So say I get my diagnosis, how quickly would I go into surgery? How long is the surgery? What's the recovery? On, on any of, of which cancer? Mm, you pick, tell me, tell me your favorite. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll start with an easy one. Um, so, so gallbladder cancer, for example, it's incidentally found um, after the patients already have had their gallbladder removed. So the, the, the gallbladder cancer, I mean, the gallbladder is out, pathology comes back, there's cancer, patients sent to us. At that point, um, based on the T staging, the tumor depth within the gallbladder wall, we'll know if that patient will need more surgery or not, or, or more treatment or not. Um, if based on that, the, the depth of invasion of the tumor within the gallbladder uh, wall, the patient uh, needs more surgery, at that point, we would do sort of a baseline stage just to see if the cancer is anywhere else. And if the cancer is, uh, you know, uh, not uh, metastasized or spread to other parts, the complete cancer surgery that patient would need would be removing the segments of the liver that are behind the gallbladder or where the gallbladder used to be. They, they have the numbers of four and five. We take out the lymph nodes that are near the gallbladder and we check on the cystic duct margin, which is where that, which is a little connection between the gallbladder and the main bile duct. And if that margin was negative, then we don't need to resect farther into the biliary tree and we're done. Uh, so that surgery would be the next step on those type of patients. And afterwards, uh, most patients go on to have the recommendation to do chemotherapy. Um, and you know, what type of chemotherapy is, is sort of, to, to some extent, patient-specific. And there's some data out there uh, for biliary tract cancers in general, if they have positive nodes, that uh, they may be a role for radiation as well. Okay, I have to jump in here because, you know, you said we're going to remove the gallbladder. Do we not need the gallbladder? <laughs> 
so so in this scenario the gallbladder was removed already uh and then we found the cancer but in general the gallbladder is like the appendix you don't really need it um it's it doesn't produce anything it's just a place where bile gets stored if you're not eating um so when you eat in some ways you, you just have this extra bolus of bile to help you digest but if you don't have a gallbladder, bile would still continue to be produced by your liver and will still get down to your digestive tract to help digesting um, and your body will adapt over time. So it's not an essential organ. All right. Well, that's good to know. That makes me feel a little better. Yeah. Um, Dr. Pesco, I, question for you on this, because, you know, we're talking about surgically removing and, and curing and maybe we have cancer maybe or chemo, maybe we have radiation. If I leave you, do I have a chance that this will come back? Is, is it highly survivable? You know, I, I think that we know that these cancers are very aggressive, unfortunately. I do have some, you know, I think that there's been a lot of research and a lot of work that's been gone, that's been put into these cancers um, because we do know that the incidence is increasing. And so, you know, I think as time goes by, there's going to be more cases of it. But unfortunately, you know, I think the five-year survival for gallbladder cancer is somewhere around 15%. And for, you know, cholangiocarcinoma as a whole is around 25% at five years. So, you know, people hear that and they think that that's, you know, not exactly what they want to hear. But what my, you know, my shiny side of the coin would be is that there's so much research going into this and so many exciting things coming down the pipeline that what I tell you today is not going to be the same what it is a year or two years from now. Well, let's talk about that because that was I was going to ask you next, like what's new? What's coming down? I mean, we hear a lot about genetic testing and clinical trials. Is, is there something you're most excited about? So I am, this is where I nerd out a little bit. I love molecular genetics. I think it's going to change the way that we do cancer care. I think in the past we've treated everyone kind of, you know, everyone gets the same treatment but with these new genetics, we actually look at the mutations within the cancer themselves and try to isolate drugs that will affect those cancer, those, those tumors. So a great example is for cholangiocarcinoma, there's been two new drug, like two mutations that have been isolated. One is IDH and one is FG, FR2. And there are a couple like truly specific uh, chemotherapy agents that have been tailored to those mutations. I think hot off the press is the Topaz-1 trial, which is using immunotherapy with kind of the current standard of care, gem, cytobine, and cisplatin, which has showed a 20% decrease in risk of death of patients with cholangiocarcinoma. Um, so I think there are so many exciting things on the horizon that, you know, the way we treat cancer today is not going to be the way we treat it five years from now. And that keeps Juan and I, you know, keeps us in the medicine and keeps us continuing to move forward. So I don't know if you remember this from last time, but I like to call it a nerd trap when I set you up to show your nerdiness. Um, <laughs> so, so Juan, let's, let's trap you a little bit. Is there anything else coming down that excites you when it comes to treating these conditions? You know, I, I think that, that didn't cover the highlights, um, you know, the, the immunotherapy trial that just came out. Um, immunotherapy has been around for a little bit for, uh, for the cancers that Jen and I treat. It's been, made it, it's been hard to make a breakthrough. Um, 
so this this trial that just came out, I think uh, it, it's it's going to be very exciting to to see in our patient population, and obviously, um, you know the the targeting genetic mutations or, or targeted therapies. So so really, those those two are are the highlights. Um, when when it comes more to what we do, uh, which is the surgery piece, um, we are not necessarily going to improve the overall survival of these patients with more surgery. But having said that, our surgical techniques have certainly improved. If you look at you know the surgeries that we do 10, 20 years ago compared to today, where they are becoming much more safer uh, potential immediate complications for the operations are, um, you know, less uh, common. And, and, you know, these surgeries in general are considered, you know, major operations. Uh, just to, to give you some context, one of the surgeries that we do for cholangiocarcinoma, that it's in the bottom part of that trunk or the distal cholangiocarcinoma, distal bile duct is it's called a Whipple operation or a pancreatic odoenectomy. That surgery, when it was first described back in the 1930s, it was a, a two-day operation and one in four patients died, where mortality from that surgery at high volume centers now, like where Dr. Pasqua and I work, um, it's 2% or less. And it's uh, anywhere from three hours of surgery to maybe a more complicated surgery, you know, lasting up to eight hours. But certainly, we've come a long ways from that day, from the times of a two-hour, two-day surgery by Dr. Whipple in the 1930s. Yeah, I definitely like my odds better today than I would have <laughs> in the 30s. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't think people realize exactly how much research and technology and clinical trials and, 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 you know, just time investment that Providence puts into advancing healthcare, right? I mean, people think of us as that not-for-profit that takes care of the poor and vulnerable, but the things you're talking about, giving you guys the chance to, you know, improve the technology and the timeframes and have these, these, you know, trials. Talk to me a little bit about what that means to you as clinicians to be in a system that is focused so much on advancement. Maybe you, Dr. Pasco. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, working at Providence, I have been very, very happy with, you know, the patient is the center. And I think that sometimes you can get um, in some systems where it's more about the project, or I think it's finding the right study for the right patient or the right treatment for the right patient. And I, I have been very happy. And I think it is exciting. It is exciting when we find a clinical trial for a patient that, you know, doesn't have a lot of other options. I um, you know, there is some joy in like giving someone hope with, you know, this new technology that's on the horizon. And I, I, I let, I love it. So how about you, doc? Um, you know, Mary, I think you, you may have this data, but if you look at Providence as a system, as an organization across the many states, we have one of the highest numbers of cancer analytic cases in, in the country. So as a system, taking care of all these, you know, cancer-specific patients does have 
a lot of weight because that translates into all the efforts, as you mentioned, that Providence, Providence puts uh, not only for the cancers that we treat, but towards advancing medicine and improving outcomes for, for that patient population. So it's sort of the power of the volume and the number of patients that we see, um, you know, it's, it's, it's clear how that translates to the progress uh, that's, you know, achieved within, you know, our own uh, network. That's a, that's a really good point. I think it's actually one of the things I like best about Providence as well is that we are a larger system, right? You guys are in one part of Washington, but if we had a case that was in a different part, you might consult on it. Or like my father was treated in one part of the system and then moved to a different one for his surgery. And it's that bigger you know, group of experts that you have in these little pockets that work together that I just think is so amazing. And I love that specifically about cancer because there's so many consultations that happen on the, the cancer side that you guys might be talking with a, somebody in Montana on any given day about something that they've seen. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we do work uh, closely and, you know, within the community and then regionally, and then there are certain opportunities to, to, to collaborate, you know, with, with, within all the states, Texas, California, Alaska, uh, Oregon. So, well, I, I keep telling Dr. Hockman that I think we should probably acquire um, a health system somewhere in Hawaii so that we can do more of these consultations in, in, in person. Yeah. But so far, I'm not getting very far with that. Um, so, Dr. Pascal, question for you, because we talked a little bit about this, right? I can't necessarily change my genetics. I can't necessarily change my heritage. I can change my lifestyle. So what are the things I should know about or I should try to do maybe to decrease my odds of getting this type of illness? Well, I think, you know, one of the things is, you know, staying in touch with your primary care physician. You know, I think that's one of the things that I would talk about is that a lot of these patients, you know, haven't seen a doctor in several years. And I think that that's very important. I think, you know, staying active, fit lives, decreasing your risk for obesity. Of course, I think everything in life is about moderation. So with alcohol consumption, you know, trying not to smoke, we know that that's a carcinogen. Um, these would be the things because you can't change, you know, your ethnicity or I can't change that I'm a female. Like these are just things that, but just to know that these cancers, I think Dr. Mickey hit on this, they're very rare. Um, and it, it, just because you are native American or a female, it, it's not going to, that doesn't mean you're going to get this cancer. I think that's really important. Um, so. I do have a totally random one for you because I, I was telling somebody we were having this conversation and they said, oh, ask them if keto is bad for your gallbladder because there's so many people that are doing the keto diet right now. Is that something that you guys get asked a lot or you know much about? <laughs> um, no, I don't get asked a lot about that. But, you know, I again, I live a life of moderation. I love carbs. Um, and Girl, carbs are my friend. <laughs> um. So I guess from my standpoint, I think that everything is about moderation. I guess, I guess that works. I don't know. Um, let me ask you this, uh, Dr. what, what is the, you know, what did I miss? Is there one thing that you really wanted our listeners to take away from this conversation that I haven't asked you so far? Um, you know, if, there's someone out there that unfortunately, you know, finds themselves in a situation where one of these cancers is being considered. Um, good information is key. Um, 
in and going to trusted sources and and trusted providers um you know there's a lot of information out there that's misleading um and 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 you know there are you know a good place to start would be with your primary care provider and and then looking into specialists um specifically if you are looking for example at a surgeon you want to make sure they have training that's specific to treating these these types of malignancies um and that it's done at a place where they see it frequently uh you know commonly refer as high volume centers um and and then you know just get informed and and be sure that you are an active participant in the decision making process of what to do about the diagnosis um seeking second opinions it's it's always encouraged uh and and we always like it when our patients are you know actively helping us come up with the best treatment plan for for that individual by you know with their knowledge and their background and what's important to them you know we always our goal is always to do as much as the patient wants us to do in you know in terms of you know curing or trying to cure the cancer um but the part of how much to do there's a personal component to that and and that's you know how much a patient is willing to do and and that's that's something that it's it's good to know uh, or hear from the patients I love that. I love the fact of, you know, working with the patients and even their families to find that that best plan for them. Because I think, you know, nobody knows their body quite as well as the person who you're talking about, right? right. Um, what about you, Dr. Pasco? Anything that you want people to take away from this? Yeah, you know, I think especially when you're dealing with rare cancers, I think many patients can feel alone. They can feel like no one knows what they're going through. And so I agree with Dr. Mejia that finding a good resource for these patients and for the bile duct cancer, there's a foundation called Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation. Um, I've found that you know patients can link up with other patients who are going through similar experiences. Um, it's a great resource, a lot of information, a lot of information about clinical trials, and it's been very helpful for my patients. Um, finding support groups within Providence or in your community, I think, especially when you're going through something that, you know, you feel like no one else knows what's what you're experiencing, it's very helpful to talk to other people. I definitely think you're onto something there. Well, I just, I want to thank you both for joining us today on Let's Finish Cancer. This has been a really great conversation. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today on Let's Finish Cancer. We look forward to continuing the conversation on the whole person approach to cancer care with more experts from Providence in our future episodes. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under our Future of Health radio station or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.